Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Dana Sachs, author of the new book, All Else Failed, the unlikely volunteers at the heart of the migrant aid crisis. Uh, Dana, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And congratulations on the book. So when and where exactly did All Else Fail? I guess we could say in Greece, in the 2015 especially, when hundreds of thousands of refugees, um, mostly from Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq, started arriving on small boats from Turkey. And the large international aid apparatus that we expect to be there in times of crisis really wasn't prepared. And so in response, a lot of individuals stepped forward to help. And my my book is about that grassroots aid effort that developed when the people you think will be there weren't there. Yeah, it's interesting that, I mean, the failure element of this is apparent right from the very beginning. As you say, these uh, refugees that you focus on end up living in an abandoned school in Athens aided by a group of volunteers but not by, particularly by the government of Greece, the European Union, or that vast phalanx of United Nations and, and aid organizations that you might expect to step in at this point. Right. I mean, I don't want to imply that they, they were not around at all. I mean, those actors were present in different ways, either observing or sort of talking <laughs> and just having meetings, trying to figure out what to do. Um, and in some cases, providing minimal aid, but they weren't there in the ways that you would hope. I would say it this way. If I were in trouble like this, I would want there to be a more robust response from the international aid community than was there on the ground in Greece. And yeah, so so a lot of people ended up depending on the aid they got from whoever just happened to show up to help out. Yeah, I suppose in, in some ways that does emphasize the point that you made at the beginning there, that these refugees are actually living through the experience of this geopolitical maelstrom that existed in Europe at that point and beyond, actually. But that, you know, the death and destruction that's raging through the Middle East and, and then this vast displacement of peoples. I mean, so many government actors and non-government actors simply just didn't know how to respond adequately. Yeah. And Europe was a particularly complicated situation because a lot of those actors, and now I'm talking about like the United Nations High Commission for Refugees or the Red Cross, the International Rescue Committee, but especially the UN, they are used to being present and being on the ground in, you know, a really significant way in, in places that we think of as being um, humanitarian disasters, part, you know, famine in Africa or wars in faraway places, but not in Europe. Really, since the founding of the UN, this was the largest refugee crisis in Europe since the end of World War II. And the United Nations was formed after that. So they had never had to act in that way in Europe, especially on such a large scale. So they just weren't really ready. And also, I mean, in their defense, they would say, well, Europe should be able to take care of itself. And the European countries didn't really step forward either. And Greece is one of the poorest countries in Europe and was going through an economic crisis. So it was sort of a perfect storm of factors working against a really robust international response. Yeah, and it did uh, precipitate a political crisis in, that in many ways went to the heart of the European Union itself, because as you explain in the book, they actually put huge resources into the refugee crisis. 
But the story, the bigger story that you tell is one of incompetence, political infighting, and an ideological struggle about what exactly refugee policy, policy should look like. Exactly. So much of it was political. I mean, there was the financial element, too, that on the ground, there wasn't the aid that was needed for individuals and families who, who basically, you know, they needed, they needed quality food, for example, nutritious dinners. And they would get like these plastic pre-made meals that was basically just, you know, a little plastic box of pasta. It wasn't enough for them. There were, they didn't necessarily have diapers when they needed it or, or, you know, sanitary pads for women. But there was a huge amount of money coming in that just wasn't being used effectively. And then there was also the political question of if we continue to, to provide aid in a, in a robust way for these people, then more and more people are going to come across and we don't want that. So in some ways, I mean, there's certainly been a lot of accusations that the failures of the um, humanitarian response in Greece are in part an organized way of deterring people from coming, you know, and saying, to themselves, let's don't leave Turkey, let's don't leave our homeland, because if we get to Europe, it's going to be terrible there. So the European countries didn't want to make it look really great. Yeah, and that I guess that deterrence element then leads us to another problem that you talk about in the book, that in 2016, the European Union signs this deal with Turkey to stop the movement of refugees. But that actually has the effect of trapping many of these displaced people in Greece without the ability to go leave the country most of them would not have wanted to go back to their countries of origin. So they end up in, in some of these rat-infested camps run by the, the Greek military, and which you describe in, in great detail. These really were terrible conditions, weren't they? Yeah. My book is really told from the points of view of many of the people who were on the ground, and I'm trying to weave together their stories. And so I'll, I'll describe um, one of the people I, I talk about throughout the book. is Her name is Rima, and she's a Syrian uh, housewife in Syria. And she's very social in her hometown and, and has lots of children, and she uses organic cosmetics. And she's, you know, just like this very vivacious person. But then the war came to where they lived, which was outside of Aleppo, and people bombed, and her town was bombed. And so her husband and one child escaped, but she couldn't leave because she was pregnant. So after she had the baby, she and her other five children left on their own. So th there's a woman with a newborn, a toddler, a five and six-year-old, both boys, and a, one adolescent. And she made it from through into from Syria into Turkey through Turkey, on a boat, into Greece. I mean, the story is, is horrific, but she made it. She's incredibly strong. And she ended up in this camp, as you were saying, and, and she's there in this camp alone. And the first night they're there, they're brought on a bus by the government. The government says, okay, go find yourself a tent. They can't find a tent. They sleep on the grass. I mean, like I'm saying, she has a toddler, a newborn, and three other children. And she ends up staying there for a few months. She finally found a tent, but there's constant violence there, rats and mud, and the food is, is like not edible and her children are miserable. And this is an, an official government run camp. And in the book, I describe the toilet situation. There's not enough toilets. There's not enough doctors. There's not enough like anything. And the, oh, there's no mental health services. And people are losing their minds there because the situation is so horrible. The despair and the, the mental health crisis and hysteria. And she was strong enough to get herself out of there. But that was that was an official camp, you know? 
Yeah, and it's, it seems to me that this is where the volunteer movement really steps in to fill the void that had been left by government services, NGO services, and so on. Exactly. And I mean, the book is called All Else Failed, and it, it's a book about a failure, of course. But I mean, I decided to write the book because I feel like it tells us something really extraordinary and hopeful and inspiring, which is not something we can say very often about migration, but about the ways that people come together to help each other. And and all the people that I, that I really follow closely in the book eventually became part of this volunteer effort. And for example, Rima, when she got out of that camp and she ended up in the school that had become a housing accommodation center for refugees, illegal, I might say, it was an Ill- illegal housing accommodation. It was, it was just an old rundown school that had been closed and was taken over by, by activists. And she went there with her five children and they put up a tent in a classroom and there's 400 people in that school. And she became the volunteer cook and she cooked every night for 400 people. So I really want to tell this story about the ways that people come together and help each other. And I think it's kind of amazing because we, we think about migration and we think about, we think about it as failure and tragedy, but it does also bring out this really amazing ability in people to come together and, and do something that is more than the sum of all the individual parts. Yeah, there are some remarkable stories uh, in the book, but it is, it is also striking that many of the volunteers, coming back to that point we made earlier, are simply confounded when they first arrive at, at these camps. And, you know, you quote people saying, well, shouldn't the Red Cross or the UN or shouldn't somebody be here? They ask these questions in, a, in an exasperated fashion. And that seems to be a common experience that occurs time and time again. Absolutely. I mean, I'm part of that volunteer effort and I started a, a nonprofit with three friends of mine that that funds a lot of these grassroots aid teams. And over and over again. And still to this day, I'm sort of thinking like, why are we the ones doing this? And, and, but as a journalist, I asked this question of the people who I was interviewing, who were part of that volunteer effort. And, and, you know, there's one point where I asked this British woman, Tracy, like, did you ever sort of stop and think, why am I the one providing aid? And she said, every single day, many times a day, I'd think, why am I the one that's getting food to these people? Or why am I the one that's finding housing for an Afghan family that that would be sleeping on the streets? Or why am I the one who's making sure that, uh, like, well, she literally at one point jumps into the water because people are drowning, coming in on boats on Lesbos Island. From, they're on, arriving on boats from Turkey and they're ending up in the water and some people can't swim. And she herself is jumping in the water and pulling someone to safety. And I mean, it's traumatic for the volunteers as well. And she's sort of saying, why am I here? I, I don't know why I'm here, but I can't leave because people might literally die if I am not here. So the, the mental health questions for even for the volunteers can be really intense. Yeah, and as you say there, so many of the stories in this book uh, are inspiring. What about the darker side, though, of using volunteers? There have been stories in the news recently that um, this has opened the door for exploitation. We have heard terrible stories of abuse, including rape perpetrated by volunteers, aid agency workers, and on the most vulnerable. How do you get that balance right? Yeah, that's one of the things that's been really interesting to see in more more recent years. So, I mean, the book starts in 2015 and 
I would say that was a time of chaos. Like whoever happened to show up literally could pull someone out of the water or, you know, take a child from a woman on a boat and walk away with the child. And I mean, most of the time it ended up okay. But I mean, one of the problems with not having an official system that works is that it's very vulnerable to abuse. So what I'm seeing in more recent years is a sort of professionalizing of of these aid teams so that if somebody wants to volunteer they have background checks and they have they have mental health assistance available and they're they're implementing some of these systems that the larger aid organizations have used for years but they're also remaining flexible and nimble and able to sort of shift and make changes to adapt to the conditions on the ground as as they're needed so what I'm trying to say is that I'm seeing I'm seeing the best of these organizations adapt and use these kind of principles that are so important to protect the vulnerable people that they're meant to help. But they're also they're also trying to change the system so they're not operating like these really big organizations that, as I demonstrate in the early chapters of the book, are so sort of calcified that they can't be flexible enough to really help in a way that's effective. And it's not really the the topic of the book, but some of those bigger aid organizations that you mentioned have also been culpable in terms of abuse and misallocation of funds as well. And you're particularly scathing, I felt, about the involvement of publicity-seeking celebrities who latch themselves onto these kind of uh, issues. That I mean, it, it, the, the impression left for many, particularly actually for those who've donated for years to these kind of organizations, uh, is that the whole thing is a bit of a mess at the moment. I really, I want to say that what we need to do is is find ways to make these organizations work better. We absolutely need them. Um, these small grassroots organizations that I talk about, they can be incredibly effective, but they can't do the work of the United Nations. When I talk about this refugee camp at Edomani, which is where, where people ended up when the borders closed between Greece and Macedonia, which you mentioned earlier, the 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 grassroots aid teams were providing food and they were pro- providing mini tents and you know little like camping tents and stuff like that they could do a lot of a lot of really important work but they they can't provide a staff of doctors like doctors without borders and and they can't provide these you know really big multi-person tents that hold like 100 people in them that the UN can provide these organizations have millions of dollars and they can they can do really important significant necessary work but they have a lot of problems, a lot of institutional problems that are keeping them from being as effective as they could be. Yeah, I guess that's one of the questions that underpins the whole book. You know, how do these bigger NGOs and the, the small volunteer groups and teams, how do they work better together to get the kind of outcomes that you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I can't say I'm seeing a huge change there. Humanity Now, the nonprofit that I co-founded, we've been working now also to help refugees who are coming out of Ukraine. And I've been hearing from um, aid teams on the ground there that, you know, there was so much money for Ukraine and so much. I mean, we were all, you know, pushing donate on on our computers to to give money for these refugees, which is really helpful and important. But, But when there's so much money, sometimes these large organizations will end up with like you know, $3 million and it's, it's earmarked for education. And so they, they don't necessarily work very well with the teams on the ground. They might say to a team, 
we're going to give you $500,000 for an education project. Do an education project, make it work in six months, and then you'll be finished. And there's not enough give and take between these organizations so that the ones on the ground can say, listen, this is how we have to do this education project to make it work. And what do you think of this? And back and forth and talking to each other. And I mean, really, if the communication would improve, I just think it's really important for them to start thinking about ways that they can communicate better and respect each other more so that the work between these two separate but parallel sort of systems can function better as a sort of whole universe of, of aid. But that's not really happening yet. Yeah, and kind of in in some ways, the trajectory uh, very often seems to be that things are getting worse rather than better. That I mean, right towards the end of the book, some of the the worst scenes in the book actually are when you visit the the infamous Maria refugee camp, the largest refugee camp in Europe before it burnt down in 2020. That became a byword for governmental EU NGO failure. I mean, maybe just tell us a little bit about the conditions there and what it was like for you personally to be there. The way I describe it is I was there at various times over a period of um, a few years. So I saw it in all different conditions and I saw it when it was at its most crowded. I think at, at some point it, there were more than 20,000 people living there. And and let me say that the the space, the space where there were more than 20,000 people was, I could say, like the size of maybe three or four football fields. I think at one stage you say that this is a camp that was actually designed for 3,000 people, having in it more than 20,000. Yeah. So what it felt like when you were in there was being in the busiest subway station at rush hour all the time, all over the camp, 24 hours a day. And But especially, I mean, people could go into the little like hovels where they were, where they were saying because there were, there were caravan kind of like, they called them isoboxes that were available for some people, but I would say only like maybe 20% were able to live in them. And they were all completely crowded with people too, way overcrowded. But then there were thousands of people living on the hillsides around the camp in tents because there wasn't room inside the camp. So it was, it was a horrible place. And I mean, what I wrote about in the book was how my organization was paying to have extra trash picked up at the camp. There were mountains of trash, tall mountains of plastic bags of trash, taller than a tall person. And to walk the length of these mountains of trash would take you like a minute or two. And they were all over the camp because the, the government wasn't paying for enough trash removal. So one of our colleagues said, if you could pay, I mean, we weren't the only organization doing it, but for a couple of thousand euros a month, you could pay for extra trash removal, which would get those mountains of trash out of the camp. And for me, it was an excellent thing for us to spend money on. I mean, it felt really great, but it also felt really disappointing because why were we paying for trash removal? So I get into that and, and I, I think you might remember there's a section in the book where I'm talking with one of our colleagues who actually, again, was a refugee himself, but was working in the aid movement. And he was the one who organized this you know, system where we were paying for extra trash pickup. And I said, this just feels wrong to me. Why are we paying for extra trash pickup? And by paying for extra trash pickup, are we basically telling the government, okay, you don't have to do this. This isn't your responsibility. And he kind of argued with me. He said, we're not paying for trash pickup because, because the government isn't doing it. We're paying for trash pickup because people need this trash to be picked up and we have the power to do it. So it, it ends up with the same result. 
but it it reminds you of the purpose of the work that you're doing so that you sort of stay out of the political aspects of it to some extent. It's a good thing to argue and to, it's a good thing to, to advocate for change, but it's also really important to realize that we are there to help people and to kind of focus on that and think, okay, this is good. We're doing this thing that needs to be done and we're going to keep doing it. Your broader point there that you were making uh, to your friend and colleague it, it is an interesting one because in, in some ways, these kinds of conditions do speak to the broader, the bigger problem, which seems to me to be the unwillingness throughout the West to construct a robust immigration and asylum system that actually builds some kind of public consensus. There is no consensus at all on this issue in any major Western country in the world. Exactly. And, and I think that I think it's possible for people who work in the sector to do both at the same time. So I can, through my writing, for example, or speaking with you, I can advocate for change and say, this is not right. Like the, the trash should have been picked up by the Greek government supported by the European Union or, you know, whatever. But I can also with like the other half of my brain think, I've got money from my funders. I'm going to use that money to pay for more trash pickup because people are really suffering here and it has to be done. So we can do both, but we can't forget one or the other. And I guess, you know, the problem is that that lack of clarity, that inability to forge some kind of consensus, that's something that people traffickers, for example, have, have exploited in a ruthless fashion. But it's, it's so complicated. It's so tangled. You know, you can say that the leaders in Europe will say things like, we want to stop the people coming over on boats because that is human trafficking. And, and there's this whole network of, you know, crime syndicate that's making money off of moving bodies from one place to another. And that is really bad that, you know, people are smuggling people. But when they do that, they're also forcing people to remain in situations that are untenable for them. So it's sort of like the status quo is working for, for people in power. It, it's easier for them to say, we're stopping people from crossing because that's a criminal enterprise than to say, let's figure out why people are crossing and try to do what we can to make sure that they don't need to cross or, you know, it's all tangled up and it's the people on the ground who end up suffering. Yeah, it was, it's very striking. I came away from reading the book, you know, even more convinced that this has become a space in which it's almost impossible to have a, a rational, thoughtful conversation. I mean, how do you think that we get back to a situation where everybody accepts that there are no easy answers, tries to think more pragmatically and strategically as you're doing in this book? How, how do we achieve that, do you think? I think it's sort of person by person. I think for me personally, I, I try to humanize the people on the ground so that readers can see how much their lives are like our lives. It's really easy when you see the media and you see someone getting off a boat and they're soaking wet and they're clutching their baby or they're holding a bag that has a plastic bag with all their possessions in it. It's really easy to think those people are completely different from me. I'm sitting in my comfortable house. But what I really want to do is try to help people who are comfortable to see how close we are to the people who are displaced. And when we start to have that kind of empathy and compassion and, and understand that that could be us, 
I think it almost has to change person to person. I mean, maybe I'm saying that because I'm, I'm just an individual and I know I can't go speak to the United Nations and say, you've got to change. or I can't speak to, you know, the, the European leaders. There are all sorts of reasons that keep them from changing the politics of this situation, which just c- makes all this continue in this really negative way that you were just describing. But if we start to think individually about migration in a different way, at least that's something. It's kind of like with climate change. You know, we can't change the way the world is all the major things that are happening, but we can make individual choices that will hopefully contribute to improving the situation. And I mean, maybe that's a very small answer. I hope that's not discouraging for you, but I, I feel that's one of the most important things that we can do. And and how far do you think it, it's important to to disentangle the issue of economic migration from the question of asylum and refugees? I think it's necessary to make those distinctions, but I actually feel like, generally speaking, people want to stay in their homelands. They want to stay in their neighborhoods. They want to stay with their families. And the people who leave for whatever reason, it's their last choice. And it's the choice that they're making because they really need to take care of themselves and their families. So I mostly write about um, individuals who are fleeing war in Syria, but I'm also really aware of people who are, you know, living in places where where they cannot find work and they cannot provide for their families. And that's happening in lots of countries in Africa. That's happening in the Middle East. I mean, I live in the United States, so it's happening with so many people in Central America in South America. And so personally, I don't make that distinction very easily. I don't think there's very many people who who just think, oh, I just want to go make a lot of money. So I'm going to I'm going to go live in another country. I think it's a hard choice for people to make. And from my point of view, I want to recognize their pain and their need and and not make those distinctions very easily. So the book is All Else Failed, The Unlikely Volunteers at the Heart of the Migrant Aid Crisis. It's written by my guest, Dana Sachs, and published by Bellevue Literary Press. Uh, But for now, Dana, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening.